uh, kind of the final week of, of this series. We've been walking through the last week of Jesus, uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, and we've been walking through that. So it's it's you know kind of it's kind of a, an interesting scenario because we're now going into the Holy Week, right? But we've been talking about it already for the for the last month, and so uh, we spent some time looking um, at this idea of the journey to the empty tomb. We've been walking through the journey to the empty tomb, and. So we spent some time talking about the triumphal entry, uh, which today is, of course, Palm Sunday. So that, that is traditionally celebrated today, but we went ahead and celebrated it weeks ago. And, and, and then we, we kind of talked through the interaction Jesus had with the fig tree and how he taught his disciples a lesson and, and us through that fig tree. And, and we kind of walked through that last week. And, and this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at the last night that Jesus had uh, before being arrested. And so uh, this day is traditionally referred to as Maundy Thursday. Uh, you may have heard that phrase before. Uh, Monday is, is being shortened from uh, mandatum, which is Latin for command. And, and, and it's because this, it was on this last night, this very last night uh, that Jesus had with all of his disciples together that he gave a new command. And that's why we call it Maundy Thursday. He gave a new command. And his command, he said this, uh, a new commandment I give to you to love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's found in John 13. And so he gave a new command there at, at, the, at the Last Supper, there at their last uh, time together. So, like I said, this whole month has been dedicated to the last week of Jesus, and we've walked through a couple different things. And, and so, you know, there's services all over that are tr- celebrating Palm Sunday, and that's awesome, and that's today. But, but we've, we've hit that, so we're going we're gonna to keep trucking along. And then what's going to happen is we're going to catch up on Friday. All right, we're going to catch up on Friday. We've been ahead of the game for, for a couple weeks, and now on Friday, on Good Friday, we're going to catch up because we're going to have uh, a very special pop-up Good Friday Gathering, And so uh, I think Heather's going to share some more information with you a little bit later on in, in, in the service this morning. But we're going to have a very special Good Friday thing that we're going to do, and it's going to be awesome. And so uh, looking forward to, to worshiping with those of you who want to come out to that. And then we're going to obviously celebrate Easter Sunday next Sunday, and it's going to be phenomenal. So here's what we're going to do uh, here this morning. And, and, and this is for those of you who maybe are visiting or, or not, not, have not been here over the course of this series, we're, we're not, there's no points. Uh, so if you're a note taker, you might get a little frustrated with me. There's no real points. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the text. We're going we're gonna to do, we're gonna, it's called, exe, we're going to exegete this text. We're going to walk through this, uh, this, these passages verse by verse. We're going to talk about them. We're going to pull some things out uh, that, that I believe the Holy Spirit kind of put on my heart to pull out some, th- some things that are interesting. We may just clarify some things as we're reading through just, hey, did you know this? Hey, this is an interesting thing here. And we're going to kind of walk through this just to give us a better understanding of the text. There's so much we could cover here this morning. We can go through the entire upper room discourse as outlined in uh, the book of John, but we're not going to, we're not going to have time to do all that. So instead what we're going to do is we're going to focus on uh, three separate parts this morning. We're going to look at this morning broken into three parts, the last night of, of Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to start at the end We're going to read the very last bit together, and then we're going to kind of Tarantino it, and we're going to go backward to the beginning, okay? All right? We're in a movie theater, so I thought I'd throw a little movie reference at you. So so we're going to start at the the end, and we're going to kind of work our way backwards, and we're going to end with the Last Supper. So uh, let me just, can we just pray one more time? I don't think we can pray too much, right? We're going to pray one more time, and we're just going to ask God to bless our time together. Father, as we open your word here, uh, in these next moments, as we read the account of um, of your Son Jesus and 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 what He did on our behalf here on this earth, 
I just pray now that you would speak to each of us individually exactly what we need to hear. It may not be the same thing for any one of us in this room. You may speak to each of us differently. It may be absolutely nothing I say. It may be everything that the Holy Spirit says, and that's okay. Holy Spirit, we want you to speak. We want you to move. We want you to, 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 to just reach into our lives and, and show us maybe something we need to change, maybe something that we need to alter, maybe something that's going to, something, something that we need to, that needs to be different so that we can be more like Jesus. Bless the reading of your word this morning. It will not return void. You will, you will speak through your word. That's a given. The living word will reach out and impact us in a big way. Believe that this morning. Thank you so much for the time we have together and be with us over these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with Jesus' Jesus's arrest. So let's start there, which technically may have happened after midnight, which would be into Friday, but we won't get into technicalities here. Uh, we're going to go with it. So we're going to read Matthew exclusively today. Mark and Luke also outline a lot of the events that happened on, on this particular night. Of course, John more focuses on the upper room discourse and, and kind of goes into some of the teachings and some of the things that Jesus said. But, but, but the other three gospels do outline sort of the events. But we're going to focus just in on Matthew, and that's where we're going to hang out. So Matthew chapter 26, um, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, this, the, the scripture is going to be behind me on the screen, and we're just gonna we're just gonna read through this, and we're gonna see if, if you maybe you've read this before, maybe you've read this a dozen, two dozen times. Um, if you're like me, when I first became a believer, I started reading in the Gospels, and I just kept reading in the Gospels because they were a little easier to understand, and you know I wasn't gonna go back to like Lamentations or something because I had no idea what was happening there, so I just kind of stayed with what I knew, and uh, and so maybe you've read through this a bunch. Well, let me just encourage you to listen with new ears this morning. All right, listen with new ears and 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 just hear what happened. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna read this account together, and we're gonna just uh, kind of experience this last night together. Um, so, so let's do that right now. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So Judas, uh, one of the 12, he, he specifically, uh, he specifically points that out because he wants us to know this was one of the 12. This was a betrayer from within the, the 12 disciples. So G Judas, one of the 12, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't, but, but that's what happened. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You actually learned that a little earlier, which we're not going to talk about, but, uh, but that's, that's, that's an interesting, I think the 30 pieces is interesting. I want to point out in Exodus, uh, there's a passage in Exodus that talks about how 30 pieces is actually, um, uh, it is the penalty that the owner of an ox had to pay if it gored a slave. All right, so the, so the slave was what the slave was worth essentially thirty pieces of silver, and and if at some point during the workday this ox got away, and I guess it was common enough to where they had to actually include it, so people got gored a lot. Is a weird scenario, but uh, thank goodness for tractors, I guess now. But uh, so so what would happen is the owner would have to pay thirty pieces of silver in retribution for for that slave losing his life. Uh, also, it's important to, to, to point out that in Jesus' day and time, it was about four months' wages. Um, that's how much 30 pieces of silver was, approximately four months' wages, which in today's currency would be about $7,500. So Jesus was betrayed for about 7500 bucks, And, and I, th I think that's interesting because I, I really feel like that shows us just how little 
Judas and, and the religious leaders, the chief priests, thought of Jesus. He wasn't worth a king's ransom. He was worth a small sack of silver. That's what they thought. That's what they, that's what they went with. It's kind of a sobering thought that for that, for that little, our king was given over. Verse 48, let's keep reading. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. He had already told them ahead of time. Here's what I'm going to do. He had given them a sign saying, the one I'll kiss, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And so uh, he came up to Jesus at once and he said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. So this verse always got me, right? This is one, this is one that got me because I, this is why word studies are important. Because Jesus says friend here, right? And, and friend can mean a lot of things. And Jesus, this is why understanding the real meaning of a word is so important. Because I could say that I love, I love coffee and I could say I love my wife. And those are two very different things. I'm using the same word, but those are two very different things. They have different connotations. They, they, they speak differently to anybody who hears it plus myself who says it. It's, it's a different thing. So, so I could say that. But the use of the word friend here I always found interesting. Now, what, what you have to understand is that this isn't the Greek word uh, philos, which is the, this, this term of love and endearing, this, this friendship, this actual just, you know, city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's where that comes from. So it's not just this, it's not this word philos. It's actually a different word that he uses here, um, and it's the Greek word called uh, hetarios, which actually means uh, it's more like an acquaintance, more like an acquaintance, just, just somebody I know. And it's kind of like you see somebody on the street, hey, friend, but you're not really their friend. You just kind of say, hey, friend, and, and you keep going about your way. That's kind of the word that Jesus is using here. Actually, whenever Jesus used this other times, he's usually referring to someone who has taken advantage of a privileged uh, relationship. I think what blows me away more than, more than anything is in this moment and, and, and prior to this moment, back, back when he chose Judas, but in this moment, Jesus knew, right? He knew. He knew what was about to happen. He knew what Judas did. He knew that he had given him over. He knew that he had betrayed him. And instead he responded. He still responded with, friend, do what you came to do. That just shows you the, the, the love, the humility, the sacrificial nature of our Jesus, that he would do that. He could have blown up. He could have gotten mad. I wanted him, I want him to get mad. I don't want him to say friend. I want him to say something else. But he doesn't. He says, friend, come, do what you came to do. I know what it is, so go ahead and do it. So let's keep reading. Then they came and they, they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were there with Jesus... It says one of those here. He's being generous. It was Peter. We all know it was Peter. Stretched out his hand. He drew his sword. And he struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Even facing the most difficult task ahead, he still embodies peace and love so beautifully. Don't, don't take up arms. They've got to they've carry this out. You've got you've to let them. Do, do you think... This is, one of my, this is one of my favorite verses from this passage. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. 
I love this. A Roman legion, uh, a Roman legion was about six thousand men, uh, and they they knew this. I mean, they're they're standing there. There's there's some you know guards and different people around, and they're occupied by. Rome, and so they, they know what a legion is. They know that it's about 6,000 men. And so if you're doing quick math in your head, then, then uh, he, he says at the drop of a dime, I can call down 72,000 angels. That's what he's saying. I can call down 72,000 angels at any point in time. And, 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 and do you realize how, how bold of a statement that is? Because it only took one angel, one angel, to kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt that did not put the lamb's blood on their mantle. One angel took out a generation of a nation. And he's saying, I've got the power of 72,000 angels. I could call them down at any moment. But how else will scriptures be fulfilled? But how else are people going to receive salvation? I could do that. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine what those 72,000 angels would do in defense of the Lord and King Most High? Can you imagine? I could do that. But how else will my Father be glorified? How else will these people know salvation? So it keeps going. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come, uh, <clears throat> have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Saying, I don't, I don't, I'm not a bad guy, I don't have anything. I'm not, I'm not carrying, I'm not packing heat like I'm, I'm good to go. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching you. You did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and they fled. So I wasn't initially going to include this particular uh, account in, in this particular part of the passage and what we're going to talk about here this morning. But I wanted to be sure to set the scene for the days to come. All right, Good Friday, Easter. Because Jesus could have stopped this at any time. He could, have, he could have made sure that none of this ever happened. He could have stopped this at any moment. He didn't have to choose Judas knowing that he would betray him. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem, and, and he didn't have to say the things he did. He could have called down thousands of angels at, to his defense, but he didn't. That was for us. That was for God. That was for, us, for the Father. I wonder if you ever thought about the fact, have you ever thought about the fact that God that Jesus allowed the seed to be planted for the tree that would eventually hang him, the tree that he would be nailed to. He allowed the seed to be planted. He allowed it to be watered, protected it from, from storm, from, from loggers, from termites. He allowed it to come to full birth so that he could, so it could eventually be made into a cross that would eventually like when you think about these kind of things, like he chose Judas knowing what Judas would do. He, he allowed this tree to be planted. He allowed this stuff to come about. He could have reached back at any time and said, let's stop this. No more, but he didn't. What a sacrifice. What a savior we have in Jesus. Now in the moments leading up to this, uh, we're, we're gonna talk about what, what happened in the moments right before this, which is, one of the most powerful scripture, passages in all of scripture, I think. Um, Jesus had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, so, so this is what, this is, we're, going, we're going our way backward now. So we, we gave the account. This is after the prayer. He gets arrested. Uh, they come. They take him. Jesus has betrayed him. And so we're, we're going to talk about what happened right before that, the moments and, and probably the hours leading up to, to that moment. 
I wish we could spend all morning right here because this is one of the most poignant passages in scriptures. But um, in this passage, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think we see something beautiful. We see, we truly see Jesus' full humanity. All right, we see it fully on display for the first time. So let's read this. We're going to go all the way back to verse 36. Then Jesus went to them, went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he, he drops off most of his disciples, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. So he drops off most of the disciples, but then he takes with him uh, his inner circle, his, his closest three, uh, because he wanted them to be near him whenever he was getting ready to go and, and, and say these prayers and getting ready to go and do what he was about to do. So, so he brings those guys with him. And so he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Wow. My Jesus. I said this, I said this last week. Jesus came here to live like us. He put skin on like us. Church, understand something. This is a doctrinal and theological truth. Jesus is not only 100% God, he's also 100% man. He was born of a woman, all right? He eats food for sustenance and nourishment. He sleeps when he's tired. He has the entire range of emotions that humans have. And what we're seeing right here is his humanity on display. He's struggling there's, there's an inner turmoil and anguish. He's broken up about what's about to happen. This is an agonizing time for Jesus. Because you see, he knew what was coming. And, and, and he, just like we would, we would dread this. We would dread this. Even if we said, okay, we'll do it, we're still going to dread what's about to come. He saw what was coming down the line. And he's having this, this dread, this angst, this anguish. He, he was struggling, sorrowful. I think he was also, in, the, in these moments, I think he was also very sorrowful and, and, and had some anguish for his, his friends, the 12 disciples. Because he knew what they were about to go through. He knew how things were going to go for them. He knew that, that some of them wanted to believe, but that each of them had their own doubts and fears. He knew how hard things were about to get for them. And in fact, they're going to be sleeping in just a few verses, and 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 all this is going on, and he he you know he's kind of frustrated. He wants them to just see the gravity of what's about to go down. So he said that in this passage, Jesus was troubled. It says he was troubled and and sorrowful. But in Mark, it says that he was. Uh, it says in Mark that he was actually greatly distressed. And 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 here's the interesting thing with English language can never embody fully. I think what the Greek text really is trying to tell us. And so actually, whenever you whenever you translate that text right there that says he was greatly stressed distressed in 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 Mark, it actually translates a little bit better. And it says uh, it says that Jesus was filled with horror and dread concerning what was about to take place. Our English language doesn't even do it justice. He was distressed. That's, I get distressed, you know, in the morning when I can't find my other sock, but he's distressed. He's dread and, and anguish, horror about what, for what's about to take place. Luke even gives an account of Jesus being in such a state that he, he's actually sweating blood, which is, which is a, a, an actual medical condition where he's focused so hard. He's, he's so in the zone that, that blood vessels are popping and he's actually sweating blood. Verse 39, and going a little further, 
he fell on his face and prayed. Saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's so much packed into this one verse. So much to talk about, so much to see. First, I want you to notice his posture. Jesus fell on the ground. He put his face before the Father. He's going through emotional turmoil. He is, he is just in a, in a, he's struggling and he's going through a, a lot. He knows what's about to happen and he decides to pray, but not just pray, but pray in the most humbling way he possibly can. He throws his face to the ground, lays down before the Father in complete honesty and surrender. How often do we do this? How, how often do we, do we lay down? How often do we put our face on the ground before the God most high? We think it's cute. I think it's cute when, when my kids, I'll speak for myself, not, not all of you. I think it's cute when my kids get on their knees at, at the bedside and they pray. And to my knowledge, they don't know Jesus yet. They haven't made a, a profession of faith, but I think it's adorable. Why don't I do that? Why don't we posture ourselves in that way? Why don't we physically posture our bodies in such a way that reflects, hopefully, our heart's posture? That we're actually bowing before the throne of God in our heart of hearts. So why don't we actually do that with our physical bodies? Is God not worth it? Is is Jesus' example not enough? That he would lay down on his face in the garden and pray before the Father, crying out. May we, may we be people, may we be a church that does this. May we be a people, a body. May we be individual believers that says God is awesome. He's not just worthy of my my inward, quiet, soft prayers. He's worthy of my loud exaltations. He's worthy of me lifting a hand. He's worthy of me getting on my knees. He's worthy of me bowing on my face, crying out to him because he can take it because he's God. I think some of the most powerful moments of prayer I've ever had have been with me laying face down on the ground, fully surrendered to God. And I can honestly say I don't do that enough. Jesus postured himself on the ground and then he prayed. When the certainty of death was at the doorstep, he prayed. When life is getting unbearable, he prayed. Uh, You know, being a pastor, I have the privilege of getting to walk alongside people in some of their, their best moments and also, unfortunately, some of their darkest moments. And, and here's, here's the commonality as, as talking with people. Every time that, that somebody comes to me and they're in, they're in kind of their darkest moment, my first, second, and third piece of advice is pray. I mean, I'll be a listener, and, and I'll try to give you some, some biblical sound advice if I have any, but you know who can really help? God. Let's pray. And then pray again, and then pray some more. Jesus is praying in this moment. He's he's talking to the Father. He's working through this 
anguish. He's working through this situation. He knows what's to come, and he's trying to reconcile that with, with the Father in this moment. He prayed in light of what was about to occur. <clears throat> he also does this. He prays, let this cup pass. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about? What is this cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. Ultimately, it's the cup of death. But understand this, church. This is our cup. This is our cup. This is my cup. This is your cup. This is the cup that we deserve. The cup that's being handed to Jesus is ours. He could have very easily said, let Robbie's cup pass from me. Let it move on. But if it's your will, I'll do it. This is my cup. Because it's my sin. It's our sin that is leading Jesus to the cross. This is what we've done. It's what we're going to do. And, and it's to know that the sinless son of God brought to the point of this kind of anguish because of my sin, that should be enough to, that should be enough to wreck us in a way. That should be enough to really do something and stir something inside of us because we deserve that cup, the cup of wrath. It's ours. But God, but God stepped in. He came in. And he took that cup. Let's keep reading. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me for one hour? I love that. Just, he's, he's praying. Hey, he brought, brought these guys along. He said, you're, you're my top three. You're my, you're my best friends. You're the ones that I do life with. And I want you to come. And I'm, I'm going through some stuff. I want you to sit here, just watch over while I'm praying and just spend some. And he comes back and they're sleeping. They're, they're passed out. They're sleeping. Could you not just for one hour watch over me? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that so true for so many of us? Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed. He continues to go back. He continues to pray. You know, a lot of times whenever we're going through something in our lives, and this is what I've seen, and I've, I've seen this for myself too, so I'll, I'll lump myself in this category. We'll pray one time and we'll, we'll pray fervently, right? We'll pray and we'll pray hard. God, would you Take this from me. God, would you fix this? Would you reconcile this situation? God, would you make this better? And we'll believe it and we'll go after it. But if it doesn't happen, we get frustrated. We don't go back a second time. We don't go back a third time. Jesus, he went back three times and he continues to pray. He goes back and he, again, he, uh, he says, uh, my father, if this cannot pass, uh, unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, and again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so uh, leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came back, uh, got the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Is it not mind-blowing when you think about this? That Jesus is willingly going to the cross to suffer for people who don't love him or care for him and who are his enemies in order to reconcile them back to God. Is that not an incredible thought? Just that last sentence. Hey, I've been betrayed. Let's go. We've got an appointment. I mean, how incredible is our God Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. So he saw the horror of, of God's wrath being poured out on him, our cup being poured out on him. He saw the cup of wrath that we deserve. He saw the separation between himself and God. And because of our sins that would be laid on him, he saw that. He, he saw all of that coming. But God, he saw past that. He saw the joy that was set before him. He saw himself seated at the right hand of God. And he saw all that would be saved by receiving God's grace made possible through his act of obedience. He saw his father glorified in the saving of sinners by the sacrifice of his, of his self. Come on church, that is exciting. That is that is for the glory for set before him. He saw he saw what was to come but he saw past it. He saw the, the horrors, he, saw, he dreaded what was about to come, but he saw beyond it, and he saw you, and he saw you, and he saw me. And he saw the glory of his father. He said, for that I will. For that I will. Should fill our hearts with praise, church. It's such a beautiful thing. Jesus won the battle in the Garden of Gethsemane that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. What had, to, what had the power to destroy us in the Garden of Eden actually gets reversed in the Garden of Gethsemane. How beautiful of, of, a, of a parallel is that? The enemy thought he had something going. But God stepped in and took over. Now let's go back one more time. All right, we only have a few more minutes. One more time to the very beginning of the evening. I'm sorry, I've got to press through this really quickly, but I want to make sure we hit all of these, all of these passages here this morning. We're going to go back to the very beginning of the evening, and all of this that we've talked about came after he spent his last night having dinner with the disciples in the upper room. So let's go back and let's read this passage together. We're going to start in verse 20 this time. So when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Might sound odd, but traditionally the tables were very low to the ground, and, and the guests would actually recline at the table on like cushions. All right, it sounds kind of fun, right? Like it's not, it, has, it looks nothing like Da Vinci's photo uh, or his, his painting. It looks nothing like that. Uh, they're, they're actually basically like laying down and they're enjoying each other's company. And so as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. What a statement to make in the middle of dinner. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him uh, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I the one? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, <laughs> this is kind of funny, because I want to I talk about this verse for a second. First, understand that sharing a meal together was, was in a very important thing in this culture. All right, it was a very, very important thing. Sharing a meal together was not like, like afterward, I may ask somebody, hey, what are you doing for lunch? And you're like, I'm going to Wendy's. And I'm like, okay, cool, I'll go get some nuggets. So that's, that's very casual. All right, it's a very casual thing. But, but at this point, it, in this culture, sharing a meal, bringing somebody into your home, and not just any meal, but this, this is a fine meal. This is an actually celebration meal. This is, this is a Passover meal we'll talk about in a second. And so, so this is a big, big deal. This is the height of fellowship, a formal meal. It had traditions. It wasn't taken lightly. Secondly, the dipping in the dish is actually referring to the method by which they're eating. So uh, there's going to be a dish of sauce in the middle of the table, a communal dish of sauce. And um, I hope they didn't double dip, but they all go in with their bread and with their meat and they, they get in there. So what he's saying essentially is whoever has done this, which everybody at this point at the table has done this, whoever's done this, it could have been you. 
So he doesn't really give an answer, but he is saying, he's just, he's just saying, it is one of you, for sure. He who has dipped the hand in this dish will betray me. But I think he goes a little bit deeper than that. I think it was a little bit deeper than that. Because in a sense, we've all betrayed Jesus. In a sense, we do it almost on a regular basis. Traitor could be any one of them. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. I can't stop thinking about this verse and how it applies to us. You see, the height of disloyalty and, and betrayal sharing a meal with a friend right before turning on him. That's what Judas is doing. And I think about Judas and his, his smug, deceitful face as he sits there and as he eats the food and he dips in the sauce. And, and it's, it's, it's easy to get riled up over it. It's easy to get frustrated, to get angry. How dare he dine with Jesus and then walk out and do what he does? How dare he break bread with our Lord and then go betray him? How dare that happen? But what's interesting is this week while I was studying for this, God really convicted me on this point. Because I really thought about how often do I do that? How often do we do that? We meet with Jesus on Sunday and then we betray him on Monday. We come in here, we come into the throne room, we meet with him, we talk with him, we praise him, and then we walk out into the world and we betray him again and again. But this is why we need Jesus. We need his saving grace. This is why we're so thankful that he did take this cup from us. The son of man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man whom the son of man is betrayed. To that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. I don't have time to dive into the theolo this theological nugget here, but it is a good one. Because if all of this was foretold because God is sovereign, but Judas is still going to be held accountable for his actions. It's an interesting study. Go back and look at that one and spend some time there. Judas, verse 25, who would betray him answered, is it I, Rabbi? We'll talk about how <clears throat> deceitful this is. This is, but but what's interesting is that everyone in the, everyone else in the room calls him Lord. I just want to point out this. This is kind of shows you the heart of of Judas in this moment. This kind of shows you where he's at spiritually. Everyone else in the room calls Jesus Lord, but Judas always calls him Rabbi or Teacher. In fact, there's no record of Judas ever calling him Lord. So it's actually fair to assume that he actually did not believe at all that Jesus was who he says he was. Jesus said to him, uh, you have said so. Verse 26, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up here in just a moment. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this, uh, take, eat, this is my body. In verse 27, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, uh, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is what we know as the Last Supper. It's also called the Lord's Supper. It's also called communion. If you come from a traditional liturgical background, you may have heard of it as the Eucharist. right? But, but to these guys, it was a Passover meal. 
That's what they were doing. They were, it was a Passover meal. They were, meaning they were remembering the day of Passover when, uh, when God smited, whenever he, he took them by this action, took them out of Egypt. So they're, they're kind of celebrating the fact that God released them from Egypt, released them from bondage and slavery. But the way it happened was, if you remember the story, he, he sent the final plague, which was the angel of death who came in to Egypt and killed the firstborn of all people in the land who did not have uh, the lamb's blood on their door sill. And, they, and they, they remember this. This is a remembrance dinner. They're remembering the glory of God and his, his, the, the, the beautiful moment whenever he released them from their bondage and their slavery. So here's the way this mill works. It's actually, uh, it's actually they, this part of the mill, there's a whole thing. There's some things that they recite and some things that they say, and there's, there's this whole thing that, that happens. But this particular part that we're focusing in on right here, uh, what's happening is, is they actually fill their cup four times. So four times the cup gets filled with wine, and then they pass it around. And each time they're remembering something specific. They, they remember and say one of these promises that, that God made in Exodus chapter 6. And so uh, I'm just going to read those two verses, and this last two verses we'll read, and then we're actually going to spend some moments in communion before we leave uh, here this morning. It says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out <clears throat> from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you uh, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So here's what happens. Cup one, sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you back into the fold, and you will once again be my people. You will be becoming more like me. You will be sanctified in that moment. Cup two is the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will deliver you from, from this atrocity from this thing that you've been experiencing as a people for so long. Cup three is the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. You will be redeemed in my sight. And the fourth cup is the cup of restoration. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So the cup that we see Jesus mentioning in this moment is the third cup. Most likely. This is the third cup. That's the part of the mill that they're at at this point, the cup of redemption. You see, they were eating and drinking to remember what God had done to deliver them from Egypt. But Jesus is saying, from now on, I want you to eat and drink and remember what I'm doing right now to deliver you from death. This is what's going to happen. You're going to eat of this. You're going to drink of this. And you're going to remember, just like we've been doing as a nation, the Passover meal has been celebrated for, for hundreds of years, and we're going to remember just like we've done. But you know what? We have a new thing to remember. Because in a couple of days, I'm going to have died and rose again. And in that moment, you will have redemption. All of humanity will have redemption should they choose it. Do this in remembrance of me. What a picture that we see of Jesus on, these, on this last evening. He does some other stuff. He washes their feet, teaches them in these moments. Our God voluntarily 
understand he didn't have to. You understand he's God. He didn't have to create us. Certainly didn't have to die for us. That's why we remember. That's why we do communion. That's why we have it out every week because scripture says as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't say how, how often. You can do it every day. You can do communion in the morning when you wake up. Do it with your quiet time, whatever you want to do. Because we always need to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We need to remember this story. We don't need to focus in on this just on Easter. We need to remember that the gospel permeates every aspect of Scripture and should permeate every aspect of our lives. That's why we do communion, because we just want a physical, tangible reminder, because Jesus said so. He said, this is what I want you to do. Just like we're doing in this moment. Christians, he knew this. Christians for years, thousands, hundreds of years later will continue to do this in remembrance of the sacrifice. So we're going to give you a few moments to do that here this morning. Like I said at the beginning, we generally have it available every week, and you can take it as you feel led. But this morning, we want to have a special emphasis, a special time, since we are looking at that last night of Jesus' freedom. So I'm going to pray over us and then um, invite you to go. Uh, the table is there between the two sections. Uh, if you've never, if you haven't taken communion before with us, it's it's the bread and the the dipping, just like we just talked about. You know, just like he kind of did with the sauce and the the cups at the table. So, uh, just one one other thing that that we're not have, we don't have time to get into uh, this morning, but Scripture also says a little later on in the New Testament that you should only, and I think it's implied here as well, you should only take communion if you're a believer. And so uh, if you're in here this morning and you're not quite sure where you're at, you're, quite not, you're, not, you're not sure what you believe, you're not sure if you know Jesus, you're not, you're not sure about anything, or maybe you know for sure, I do not know Jesus. These things you're talking about, the, this, this passion for, for this, this man who died, I don't have that. During these moments, come, come see me. I'm going to be right here, and I would love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. You know, it also says do not, do not, do not take communion. Do not approach this, uh, this act with an unclean heart. Right? Don't, don't, come, don't come at this if you've got all of these things that, that's going on, all of these, all of these unresolved, uh, all of these unresolved sins, all of these habitual sins, all of these things that you're not, you haven't given to God, all these things you've been holding back for yourself, all these, these worldly things that you're not letting go of. It's not appropriate in, in that sense either to take communion unless you're ready to give those things over to God unless you're ready to lay those down and say, hey, these are my burdens. This is where my angst and my anguish is coming from. I'm ready to put that down at the foot of the cross and I'm ready to trust in Jesus. So we're gonna give you this time to respond. We're gonna sing a song uh, together. You can feel free to stand and sing. You can, you can kneel and sing. You can stay in your chair. You can, you can come and take communion. You can come and pray with me. You can find any other random person in this room to pray. This time is for you. This time is for you to do with what you feel like you need to do. Respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. God, we give you these next few moments as we, as we pray, as we sing, as we uh, take communion, as we remember the sacrifice that, that you made in your son, Jesus Christ. As we do all of these in these next few moments, Holy Spirit, be moving in this place. Be speaking to us in these moments. We give you this time. 
We love you so much. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.